BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. We're going to kick off the, the day today, our first hour of the program today with Congressman Mark Pocan, and uh, it will be uh, Middays with Mark, uh, Thursday edition. Uh, Wednesday didn't work out, so here we are today. And uh, then a little later on in the program, uh, Dr. Richard Wolf is going to be with us. We're going to get Lamar Waldron on. We were unable to get him on yesterday to uh, do a deep dive into Bobby Kennedy's life and times. And uh, Mike Papantonio, America's lawyer, is going to drop by and say hi. But for our first hour, the lines are open for your calls. For Congressman Mark Pocan, he is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin. His website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. And Congressman, welcome back. Oh, and by the way, our number is 202-808-9925. Congressman, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Tom. And uh, my apologies uh, to listeners. I know we usually try to do this on Wednesdays. I serve on the Appropriations Committee through the end of June. We're kind of still in appropriations season for May and June. It's made the calendar, I know, a little erratic, but I appreciate everyone's patience. No, it's all, it's all fine. And, and people are, you know, it's fine with us and, you know, our callers and everything. So uh, I understand that you guys are just two votes short of, of, being, of this discharge petition, which is fancy congressional speak for um, the members of the House of Representatives saying to Paul Ryan, tough luck, Paul, you can try to block the vote, but we're going to force the vote on DACA, on, on the Dreamers. Am I, do I have this right? Yeah. So, you know, um, just to kind of quickly recap everything, you know, we have, uh, the president uh, broke the DACA program as a way to try to get money for the wall. Luckily, the courts have intervened, um, but we still are in limbo because there are, you know, um, up to a million people and probably even over a million, if you count the people who are eligible but haven't signed up for DACA, who could be deported at any time. So uh, 50 Republicans have either signed letters or legislation that would fix DACA along with every single Democrat. So the, the will is there, but Paul Ryan has single-handedly, uh, on behalf of the Tea Party and others in his caucus, uh, held up any vote on DACA to fix it. So finally, some Republicans got upset enough that they worked with some Democrats and started a discharge petition. Uh, we are two Republican signatures shy, one Democrat, but I think that person will come on board. So two Republican signatures shy. Uh, of the 218, the magic number, to force the vote on the floor. And really, it's a forcing the vote on a rule, which would allow four different options. It would allow the good lot amendment, which is a more Republican proposal, that would probably get 160, 170 votes uh, out of from Republicans. In other words, it would allow, lose. Which will lose. Um, it will then uh, allow the uh, Lucille Ryball Allard proposal, which is the, the big Dream Act, which will probably get Democratic votes and lose. Um, it will then allow uh, a third slot for Paul Ryan to put in whatever he wants that his caucus might, which, again, would likely lose. And then there's a fourth option, which is a bipartisan compromise uh, that would do many good things um, uh, and provide uh, a pathway to citizenship and some other things that were part, that really are somewhat similar to, um, I shouldn't say pathway to citizenship, but it would fix the DACA issue somewhat similar to what we had previously, along with a few other issues um, not perfect, but it's a fair compromise. Doesn't, doesn't that fourth option throw a small bone to Donald Trump in that it provides some initial funding for the border wall, and that's why Henry Cuellar in Texas is refusing to sign this thing? No, I, I think Henry's got his, his own drummer on this one a little bit. I see. Um, yeah, because plenty of the people who've been very outspoken against the wall are all on board on this. Okay. But it does have something that sounds like you could investigate ways to do things other than a wall for border security, and there's some provisions around that. But it's a... I see. It would likely get uh, a majority vote in Congress, and the way the rule works that whichever one of those four proposals gets the most votes then goes to the Senate, 
and then we still got to deal with the Senate, but at least we could finally have a say in the House. So yeah. that is something that's very real. The Republican conference met this morning to see if they could come up with their own solution. I doubt they did because they are the Republican conference, and this is an issue too many of their members uh, don't like. So now the question is, will this bring at least a couple more Republicans to sign up? Yeah, remarkable. And uh, Scott Pruitt, I, uh, you are on the Appropriations Committee, which is you had that meeting yesterday, which is why we did why we're doing uh, middays with Mark you know, on Thursday. Uh, yeah. uh, this issue of the ability of the EPA to investigate itself, it has its own you know, investigator, its own uh, inspector general. general. Um, uh, there are all these investigations that have been initiated by the EPA against Scott Pruitt. What's the deal here? Yeah, yeah, we might be up to, I believe now the number is 23 separate investigations. You know, started with his first class travel in, in flights that looked like very personal in nature, his $43,000 uh, private phone booth that he put in the office, um, the $50 a night condo deal that he got, but then, uh, you know, in, in his own uh, undisclosed email so he can get around freedom of information. There's so many things that were, I think we have to 16 or so a week ago. But just in the last week, um, you know, he, he found out through email information that he tried to uh, force Chick-fil-A to have a meeting with his wife to talk about setting up a Which franchise. is a violation of federal law for which a person can go to prison, is it not? Yeah, they didn't wind up executing it, but he tried to get his staff to do it, right? Which, again, is just crazy the way he's abusing the office. Uh, over the weekend... He had some special tickets at a University of Kentucky basketball game that were reserved for a million-dollar-plus donors to the university. He paid $130 for those tickets. Uh, and the most bizarre, we found out, is that he had asked his staff to get a used mattress from the Trump Hotel, I'm assuming not for official purposes, um, uh, and, and he was going to have his staff try to procure to, to to get yeah. that. It's all crazy, right? Well, the latest one doing? I saw this morning is that literally every day, this was in the, in the Washington Post this morning, literally every day he's going over to the White House to have lunch because it's a high-status place to have lunch. The, the lunch room, the dining room, is right next door to the Situation Room, and he is bringing his donors and his corporate buddies and his polluting friends with him as a, as a spiff to them. And the White House is so over this, they're asking him to stop thinking of the White House as his private lunchroom. It's also free. Right, and, and so yesterday we had an amendment to fully fund inspector generals. They wanted an additional $12 million to try to get through all of these things they've got to do. Uh, Republicans did not agree, but you know, our point was it's a little bit hard to drain the swamp when the, the drain is clogged with first-class uh, ticket stubs, uh, fancy phone booths, and used mattresses from the Trump Hotel. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so what, what's interesting is the Republicans are still sticking by a very, very flawed uh, chief of the EPA. Yeah, and what's really unfortunate in my mind is that most of the coverage of Pruitt is the things that you and I just talked about, rather than the fact that more children are going to get cancer and die, more adults are going to get cancer, emphysema, diseases like this, and die, as a result of things he's already done. Um, More people are going to die in the workplace and get sickened in the workplace. More people are, you know, just right across the board, the health and welfare of the people of the United States is taking a huge hit. That's not even mentioning the, the, the carbon dioxide and global warming stuff. Yeah, and, clean air and clean water are very universal, and yeah. unfortunately, he's doing a lot of damage in that area. Yeah, it is, it is truly astonishing. We're going to take a real quick break here, and uh, then we'll be back. We've got a full board of calls here uh, from all over the country, Illinois, Maine, Virginia, Texas, California, New York, Michigan, and Florida so far. Um, and, and that's all the lines we have. Uh, And so we'll be back with your calls for Congressman Mark Bocan, the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the uh, representative from the state of Wisconsin, his website, pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at rep, R-E-P, Mark Pocan. And welcome back. Uh, James in Madison, Maine, watching us on Free Speech TV. You are on the air with Congressman Congressman Mark Pocan. How are you doing, Congressman Bocan? Very good, James. How are you? Oh, fine. I'm calling. Well, I, I had bombardments of questions to ask you, but I know we're limited on time. So the main one I'm going to ask is, what is the uh, legal uh, legal rights as a federal uh, as a federal employee of the United States government to be able to to have the right to go in and inspect, okay, a facility that works for the United States government, as per se, what happened to Jeff Merkley, well, Senator Jeff Merkley, when he wanted to go in and inspect the uh, children and the way they were being taken care of at the facility, and he was denied. Does a senator, doesn't a senator have a right, uh, being a federal employee, uh, all 50 states, to be able to walk in on any, any, uh, any facility at any time without any uh, authorization of any sort? Well, I, I, James, I think you bring up a <laughs> Thanks, really great, great point. Um, and, uh, you know, this has been something that um, I would argue also uh, on the international front. You know, we give an awful lot of money uh, to Israel, and uh, a number of us, uh, a 
two years ago now, I believe it was, uh, tried to get into Gaza and were denied by the Israeli government. We're like, hey, um, you know, we are very close to you as an ally. We give you a lot of money. We want access, and we've been pushing again, especially with what's happening in Gaza, trying to get in. Uh, Senator Merkley, um, I think it was the private contractor who runs the facility or something like that, uh, essentially turned him down. But whenever there's taxpayer dollars involved, if we are your elected stewards of that money, is uh, incumbent that we have the ability to go and make sure things are being run efficiently, whether it be internationally, I would argue, or uh, obviously domestically, that is something that should be an absolute. So I, I was outraged, uh, like I think most people were, not only with the situation this administration is doing, separating families, uh, but the fact that Senator Merkley wasn't able to get into a facility, I think any of us should be able to, on behalf of you, our constituents, the taxpayers, and I know that uh, there's a lot of uh, efforts right now by members to sort of really reinforce this, and there's going to be a lot more visits to these facilities because of what they did by denying it. Rich in Calumet, Michigan, watching Free Speech TV on DirecTV. We have just a minute to the break. Real quick one, Rich. Yeah, um, what's going on with this emergency, the, the emergency cell phone and Internet program? I hear that uh, Trump wants to end that, and I can barely walk, and I live in an area that has terrible weather, especially in the winter, and if my car were to break down or something, I have no way to contact anybody now to, if they're going to yeah, cut my phone. And this is a program Reagan started. Uh, Congressman? Yeah, and, you know, and this is a program, even when I was in local government, we often had to fight, uh, even when Republicans or conservatives, I guess, at the local government level in Wisconsin, were trying to get rid of, of even uh, your tornado sirens and things. They think that, uh, you know, those are um, non-essential government services, and I think, obviously, many of us would argue on that. Uh, it's one thing for Trump to want it. It's another thing for it to get through Congress, because so far many of his uh, budgetary requests have not been approved because Congress is elected and closest to the people, and the people don't want a lot of these programs. So uh, I don't know if it's a done deal yet. Yeah. So, so for now, the uh, what Fox News refers to as Obama phones, this program that Reagan started for poor people, is still running. It should be, and again, many of these budgetary things you see him around this time of year with appropriations, his budget has been rejected by the Republicans as well. Interesting. Interesting. Thank you. This is the Tom Hartman program. Welcome back. On the line with us is Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown, his website, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two fs.com. And you can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. And uh, Professor Wolff, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. It's great to have you with us. And, and my apologies to our listeners. The audio is a little unusual because uh, we've lost our phone service. Uh, Comcast is down, uh, looks like pretty much all across the country uh, for their business phone service. And uh, so we're using Skype. But it's, I can hear you just fine and it, and it sounds good. So, uh, so let's get into it. There's, there's a whole lot of stuff uh, you know, in the news that I'd love to talk with you about. Um, the first is you've got the G7 coming up tomorrow. And, and uh, you know, Trump plans to be a gigantic you know, pain in the butt at, at the G7. That's the, kind of the headline over Daily Kos. But I wanted to, to, using that as kind of a news hook, ask you this much larger question, which is, how did the modern world trade system come about? Uh, what role to all, do all these various Gs play with it? And uh, what sort of economics does it represent? And what do you think is its future? And, and I think that's a big enough question. We can chew on that for quite a while. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think the best way to describe it is to actually go back to the uh, 1920s, again, the 1930s, the time just before, because the world was reacting to World War I and the enormous displacements of that war, which, is, to remember, 1914 to 1918, and then the Great Depression. And those two events, the aftermath of the war with all the dislocation, and then a few years later, the even greater dislocation of the Great Depression, led the different capitalist countries uh, the United States, Canada, in the Western Hemisphere, and all the European countries led by Britain, France, Germany, Italy, and so on in, there, led them to try to solve the problems of their own capitalist economic systems by manipulating their relationships with one another. They had difficulty as leaders there uh, sticking it to their own people and to their own business communities. So the scapegoat, the easy way to deal with your domestic problems was by trying to manipulate your exports and imports, the flows of money in and out of your country. That had two nice effects. Number one, 
it might be a little bit of a help. It wasn't never that much. But more important, it showed your people that you were caring for them, that you were defending them, and that you were kicking a foreigner, which is always easier to do than someone at home. But the net result of all of that was that the world economy, not surprisingly, suffered and suffered badly as one country, for example, manipulated its currency. And of course, then the next country to defend itself from the effects of that, they manipulated their currency. If you didn't import from another country, well, then they didn't import from you anymore. And this tit for tat ended up with everybody losing. And the end result was, and this is the key point, that smart people across the world, in one capitalist country after another, understood that there ought to be some way that the different capitalist countries wouldn't try to solve their own difficulties by beating up on one another. Because in the ebb and flow of retaliation, everybody would lose. The League of Nations had that as part of its objectives in the early part of the 20th century. The United Nations uh, afterwards, uh, ditto the World Trade Organization. These were all ways to try to get this job done. When that didn't work all that well, the richest countries, the G7, the G11, the G20, depending how wide you cast your net, these were new developments in which the very richest countries would get their presidents, prime ministers, finance ministers together periodically in the hope that they could come up with some coordinated way to deal with the country's problems that didn't have them uh, whacking one another in a kind of a dead-end game at the end of which everybody loses. And that's really what this is about, and that's what the, the G7 in Canada is about. It's an attempt, especially difficult now, to try to keep some coordination going, and it's precisely because Trump has basically spit in the face of all of this that you're getting the headlines and the tension and the theatrics around it. What does that mean? I mean, for example, I saw an article this morning in the Washington Post, I believe it was, or maybe it was the Financial Times, that said that um, the, uh, the, the Macron, the leader of France, has now come out and joined Merkel, the leader of Germany, in saying that if uh, Trump does not give them concessions, and this is presumably on his tariffs on, on uh, European steel, uh, that if Trump does not give them concessions, that they are going to refuse to sign the joint statement that always ends one of these agreements. Well, those joint statements, it seems to me, are always just, you know, namby-pamby, you know, well, we all got together and we're going to try and make the world a better place. Yes, that's what we do. Isn't it wonderful we all sign this? Or is there something substantive? I mean, is that a real threat or is that a, a, a theater? I mean, wh what is this? Well, you know, it's a perfectly reasonable question. First of all, you're quite right. These are empty statements. They are glosses that everybody signs so that the newspapers the next day can talk about how the leaders had, you know, honest and difficult discussions and came to a great agreement. So, yeah, they're not worth very much. But you have to be very careful because the line between what's symbolic and what ends up being real is getting very, very fuzzy. Let me explain. Most of what Trump is doing, for example, the tariffs on steel and aluminum, the threats to China and other parts of the world to impose many more tariffs on many other things. That is 99% political theater. And let me make it really clear what, what this is about. This is not an, a, a program to get more jobs. Whatever more jobs you might get in steel and aluminum will be easily offset by the lost jobs because of all the industries that will now have to pay higher prices for steel and aluminum, that will re mean they raise the prices of everything else they produce, like appliances and automobiles and so on. That will reduce the amount of those goods that can be sold to the American people and to others, and that will lose jobs for the people producing those things. If you ask someone what's the net effect, the honest answer is nobody knows. But the best guess is They'll kind of net each other out. And if I were pushed, I would say, eh, they'll net each other out. We don't know. It'll take years to play out. But my best guess is it'll probably mean a net loss of jobs. But then when you add 
that the Europeans and the Koreans and the Japanese will retaliate, as they're indicating they're going to do, well, then it becomes very clear that we will lose more jobs than we gain. But I don't think, and I, you know, this is my opinion, obviously, I don't think Mr. Trump knows or cares about any of this. He needs to appeal to a political base that shows he's out there doing things. He's upsetting the apple cart. He's the naughty boy who doesn't play by the rules and is therefore really going to get something done. That's been his persona from day one, and he's simply continuing it since it got him into the presidency, to everyone's surprise, including his. Yeah. And you're going to see this played out. But here's the problem. Now, I mean, for example, uh, with, with his solar tariffs, which went into effect some months ago, the, the, the idea was that you know, China's dumping cheap solar panels in the United States. So if we raise a tariff on that, then American manufacturers, and there are American manufacturers of solar panels, will expand their capacity and develop you know, new, line, new production lines, and they'll start meeting that demand. But the problem is that the American, and I was reading this in the Financial Times this morning, the American manufacturers of solar panels are saying, we're not going to invest you know, $100 million in expanding our factory when we don't know if this tariff is going to last more than a year. You know, if we knew that it was going to last for 20 years, if this was like a, you know, a, a real trade deal that had been signed or if this was a real coherent policy, then, yeah, we would jump into this with both feet. But we're not going to. And as a result of that, we're looking at tens of thousands of jobs across the United States in literally in the next 60 days just vanishing as, as solar operations are not happening. Companies are not having solar panels put on their roofs and, and all these kind of things. I mean, this is just like it's bringing the industry that has been the fastest growing industry in the United States for the last three years, solar and wind, bringing it to its knees because of the stupidity and unpredictability, not specifically because of the tariff. Absolutely. You're adding the uncertainty of it all. That's correct. But let me remind everyone, if you, if you put a tariff on the Chinese, you can call them dumpers and you can call them cheaters. By the way, that's what every country that has ever resorted to this kind of manipulation, no one ever said, we're manipulating the world economy to help us. Oh, no. Everybody says they're only correcting the suffering they have gone through at the behest of whatever the international arrangements were before. So Trump is simply making all that stuff up the way all leaders always do when they do this. But if he holds to the tariff, for example, on Chinese solar panels, it's not just that the American companies are going to wait and see before they invest millions of dollars when that tariff could be undone as soon as the November elections in this country this year. But also, they will only go into production if they can charge a much higher price because it's more expensive to do it here, which is why the Chinese have been dominating the market, because they can make them more cheaply. If you raise the price of all of this, then the number of people who are going to have jobs, even if it lasts, will be reduced because millions of Americans can't afford to have the installation if the price of a domestically produced solar panel is significantly higher than what they were able to get from the Chinese. Okay. These kinds of Okay. This is the reason why. This is the reason Dr. Wolf, why. Doctor Wolf, we're, we're hitting a break. If you can hold that thought for four minutes, we will be back. We're, we're going to fill this break, and we will be back in four minutes with uh, Dr. Richard Wolf. Welcome back. Professor Richard Wolf is on the line with us, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two fs.com are his websites. And uh, you can tweet him at Democracy at Work without the O. Uh, and uh, Professor Wolf, you were, you were finishing a thought, and, and, and we were both so rudely interrupted by, by, by that heartbreak. Uh, you you want to wrap up your thoughts on what we were talking about just a minute ago? One of the reasons... Americans are in love with and excited about pickup trucks is because the United States for many decades has had a 25% tariff on pickup trucks brought into this country from outside. That was to manipulate the markets, to create the demand for American pickup trucks, which is what most Americans drive. It is a manipulation. It is exactly what Mr. Trump rails at other countries about. Other countries do it too, but it is a well-understood kind of gentleman's agreement, if I could say it, enforced by things like the G7 to keep that kind of thing to a sort of a minimum so we don't get into a struggle among the different capitalists that was so destructive in the 1920s, again in the 1930s, and threatened after World War II. What you have is the breaking of that agreement 
that understanding, first by the British, to be fair, in voting Brexit, to leave the Europeans, to stop coordinating with them. There you could see the beginning of something to say, we're going to solve our problems better by not working with you. I think they regret it now, but they did it. And we will probably regret very badly the things that Mr. Trump is now doing, trying to look as though, because it's mostly theater, look as though he's doing things and fighting for America, all of that theatric, exactly what every other leader does in his or her country. And the end result may be at first symbolic, like having Mr. Macron, this is Merkel, not sign an agreement. But things are moving quite fast in Europe, and it's much more than symbolic. They are going to retaliate. It is going to spiral. No one knows where that's going. And if I can give anyone a warning, we are going to begin to see the enormous global costs of Mr. Trump's theatrics that are driven by his political domestic problems. And that's the major part that nobody should lose sight of here. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, is major stuff. Professor Wolf, we're, we're going to hit the break here in a minute. I, do, I don't know if you're available for the next half hour or not. Uh, can you stick around with us? Would you like to get I in? I wish I could. Yeah. I can in the future, but today I got another appointment. I, I have to go. I absolutely understand, and I, I thank you so much for being with us today. Um, uh, you're, geez, we just have 10 seconds. So okay. uh, is, there, is there anything that you would like to point people to in the last 10 seconds? Simply to pay attention to the fact that these theatrics have nothing to do with jobs. It's about looking like he's fighting for the little man and all of that, and not to lose sight of the political imperative that will have very bad economic consequences. Amen. Professor Richard Wolf, our economic guru. Thank you, sir, so much for being with us today. Thank you, Tom. Glad to do it. Always great talking. Hey, I've got to tell you about the world's best chair. Most of us spend over 2,000 hours a year sitting in our office chairs, and if you have back problems or trouble concentrating throughout the day, there's a simple reason. You're sitting in the wrong chair. Take your chair, your style, and your productivity to the next level with an X chair. The X chair's unique anthropomorphic design and dynamic variable lumbar support cradle your body in a way you need to feel to believe. And a more comfortable posture means better concentration and much higher productivity. In fact, if you're a business owner, there's no better way to reward your top performers than giving them an X chair. And the X chair's sleek, modern style will upgrade the entire look of your office. Give yourself and your staff the gift that pays dividends five days a week, year round. Feel and see the X chair difference by going to xchairtom.com right now. That's the letter X, chair, Tom, T-H-O-M, Dot com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. If you're not truly thrilled by the look and feel after 30 days, refer, return it for a full refund. Order today and save 100 bucks and get free shipping. If you go to xchairtom.com right now and enter the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get a free foot rest. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-X-CHAIR. We have one here. We love it. xchairtom.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. On the line with us is America's lawyer, Mike Papantonio, the attorney, host of Ring of Fire Radio, author of his second legal thriller. His first was Law and Disorder. Brilliant. Law and Vengeance, even better, uh, is his new book, Law and Vengeance. Uh, the website, T-R-O, as in the ring of, T-R-O-Fire.com. And uh, you can tweet him at Ring of Fire Radio or at Love and Papantonio. Uh, Pap, welcome back to the program. Good to be here, Tom. It's always great having you on. You have been doing some just heavy lifting around Monsanto and uh, Bayer and the merger and all this stuff that's going on. Can you tell us about it? Well, the merger that's taken place, of course, is everybody's heard about. It's going to be a disaster for, for uh, consumers all over the globe. These two companies have been sued probably more than any two companies, with the exception of maybe Dow and DuPont, who also, by the way, happened to merge together recently. Uh, these, these companies in the past have been charged with price fixing, negligence, environmental destruction, fraud, contamination of rivers, you name it. Uh, matter of fact, in the 1980s, um, is a case that, that I actually handled later in the 90s. The bear was actually sending blood tainted with, with AIDS virus to African uh, countries uh, to treat hemophiliacs. The problem was is that it was in, infected with HIV. So they, we, we forced them to take it off the market in America. After they did that, all the other, uh, the, their, their product that wasn't taken off, they sold to South America, Asia, and other parts of the with world. With full knowledge and that it was HIV contaminated? Completely, completely. Interesting thing, oh if, you go, if you do a search on factor eight, 
you'll find that the corporate media, even back then, I was so intrigued in the story that you just told, Tom, but even the, the corporate media back then wasn't willing to blow the whistle on companies like Bayer. And so there was a little, very, very little information. Same thing really has happened with Monsanto, with Roundup, killing people by the thousands all over the globe, and they've been able to get away from it. Uh, it used to be that news outlets were buzzing with information like this about Bayer and Monsanto. Uh, this is this has barely been a yawn where it comes to to corporate media because they're such big advertisers and now they expect more money to be, to be coming into uh, into this process. Yeah, I'm constantly so, seeing ads for Roundup on TV, which is you know one of the big chemicals in question right now. Yeah, for, yeah, it's for, a for huge problem. I, I think I've taken the last three depositions, uh, uh, recent most recent depositions, where I actually had documents that. Uh, have been released that show how Monsanto went in their efforts to undermine scientific evidence showing that their chemicals were causing cancer. It is amazing what they called in, what they were able to accomplish. Uh, these documents paint a clear picture of a corporate cover-up that rivals it, 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 even the tobacco companies and asbestos industry that were engaged in cover-up decades ago. Uh, one of the biggest targets uh, of this Monsanto cover-up was the IARC uh, uh, from the World Health Organization, where IARC came out and said, yeah, this will cause human cancer. After that happened, just to understand the power, the power of what Bayer and Monsanto are going to be able to do together. Just Monsanto on their loan uh, by, by, by themselves, they were able to put a, a group uh, that were classified, uh, that, that were able to go after the World Health Organization to the point that they've actually convinced Congress that we shouldn't fund the World Health Organization because they were mean to Monsanto about Roundup by saying that this stuff can cause cancer in human beings. Holy cow. So, yeah, it is the, 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 the legs of this company already, uh, it, it's astounding. But then when you think of what they're, they're, what they're able to do now with, the, with, with uh, this merger, I don't know how we can keep up with it. We, we can only do what we do every day, and that's take them to court show these ugly documents, you know, let, let the media, at least give it to the media, even though the media typically doesn't do anything with that kind of information, because they, they don't want to offend their, their advertisers. Yeah, that's, that's remarkable. What, what are we learning about um, the products that they're selling? Well, we know this much. Uh, we know, uh, if you're just talking about Roundup, since, right. It's, Glyphosate, since it's right yeah. there, we know this, uh, that they, there are overwhelming studies from all over, all over the world where the people have been exposed to Roundup uh, in, in huge volume. We're not just seeing cancer, Tom. We're seeing neuro, neurological diseases. We're seeing Parkinson's disease. You're seeing a whole host of, of, of illnesses that the could, company has been put notice on uh, Could this on have anything to do about. with the explosion in autism in the United States over the last few decades well, that seems to correlate with the explosion of the use of these herbicides and, and the genetically modified seeds that, that work with them? Yeah, there's plenty, of, there's plenty of material in studies that show that. People misunderstand the angst about GMO. Okay, the, the angst about GMO, for example, is not just that we're taking uh, DNA and we're modifying it to whatever we want. The problem with the GMO seed is it is saturated with Roundup. Imagine you've built a seed that's able to withstand poison. Now, I mean, <laughs> that tells you a lot right there. And now, so what we're finding with the what we're finding finding with Roundup is we're finding it in people's urine that have never even worked around, never been around a farm setting because there's so much of this uh, glyphosate, which is the main ingredient for Roundup. We're finding it in beer. We're finding it in wine. We're finding it in uh, uh, children's formula. So the problem that we have here is, you know, I'd like to say it's just a government problem where the government won't do anything. The Department of Justice understands that they've gone after these two corporations probably more than any two corporations in the world. And so they still say, yeah, we're going to let these two thugs now merge together. But the, the, it's not just the government. It's the media. The media will not tell the story about Roundup. It's the same thing that I've run into so many times. You know, I used to do uh, some MSNBC and when Yaz came out, Yaz was a birth control pill that was killing women by, by the hundreds all over the country. And so we had all the information. I had taken the depositions. I had all the information I needed. They needed to do a story. I said, you know, certainly one of the producers wants to do a story on, on Yaz. Well, they didn't do it because Bayer produced Yaz, and Bayer was one of their big advertisers. So with this merger that we're talking about here, take that fact situation and put it on steroids. They're going to have contact with uh, not just the media. What we found with Monsanto is they went, uh, they they hired these professors all over the country. When uh, when when we found out that that uh, Roundup will cause cancer, 
Monsanto went out and, and started hiring scientists all over the country. They developed something called Ag Bio Chatter. It was a website that industry-friendly scientists could go to who wanted to make a little extra money in the corporation. Monsanto would ask him, well, if you're willing to shill for us, we're going to pay you extra money. So these shills went out and created literature that was completely fantasy literature. Uh, that was Basically, the company would write the literature. They'd ask the scientists to sign off on it. And what we started seeing immediately were these shills that were attacking IARC and these shields that were saying, no, that's not good science. It won't really cause cancer. Wow. Wow. What, what can consumers do? What can people do? What can citizens do, for that matter? Well, the only thing, you know, it, it's, it's gotten to the point, really, where um, boycotts really do matter. I mean, we really have, you've accomplished a lot with boycotts, and we've gotten away from that. We've gotten away from the idea that we can really deal with the, with, with the market. We can, we can go after them in the market. But I think, unfortunately, the only thing that, that we can do aggressively is to, to, to sue them, to tell the stories and depositions, and then not even count on corporate media to tell a story, but have those stories told in documentaries, have them told in social media. That's been very successful. As a matter of fact, a case I just finished called The Devil We Know, uh, the, the, the movie is called The Devil We Know. It's about a case I just finished up in the Ohio River Valley. It's gonna, the, the movie will actually be released to the public in January of, of 2019. And it's a movie that tells the story. But it's the story that, uh, it's the story of how, how DuPont went in and in, in caused, caused cancer for thousands of people all along the Ohio River Valley by dumping a poison into their drinking water. You would think that would be a story that corporate media would tell, but they won't tell it because, again, the same problem, DuPont was such a big advertiser. So it's up to social media, it's up to shows like yours, it's up to shows like mine on America's Lawyer, a show I do every week. Uh, it's up to documentary uh, makers to tell these kinds of stories. Otherwise, they won't be told. Are you familiar, uh, If I just on a, uh, a digression here real quickly, because we're going to hit a break. Uh, we're going to you know, run out of time here in just a second. But are you familiar with the website theyrule.net that shows you can, you can bring up, say, AT&T and Monsanto and then just click what's the association? And it'll show you the entire board of directors of both corporations. And then it'll say, OK, this director of AT&T is also on the board of Wells Fargo. Yes. And that director of Wells Fargo is also on the board of Monsanto. It's an amazing website. Our producers use it all the time. Yeah. Uh, Fair Cousins has mastered that particular. Yeah, VagueRule.net is just, it's just incredible. But it seems like, you know, I, I would love to just to know about interlocking boards with some of these media companies as, as well. It's just incredible. America's lawyer, Mike Papantonio. Pap, it's, such, it's always an honor and pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Tom, thank you. And keep, up, keep on the, the great work fighting for all of us. I mean, that's what you guys do, and you do it so very, very, very well. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. TROfire.com, Ring of Fire Radio on Twitter. We'll be back. Welcome back. Our program this hour brought to you by GetQuip, Q-U-I-P, the, uh, the electric toothbrush, getquip.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. And on the line with us is, is my old buddy and writing partner and uh, partner in all kinds of crime, uh, meta, you know, metaphorically speaking, uh, as a joke, Lamar Waldron. Uh, Lamar is a political commentator, JFK historian, the author of The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination, and uh, the two of us worked on Ultimate Sacrifice and Legacy of Secrecy, books about the assassinations of John, John Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy, and Martin Luther King. And uh, yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of his funeral and uh, his eulogy by Ted Kennedy. Lamar, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you, Tom. It's, it's always sad we're on these kind of... Uh occasions, like the 50th anniversary of uh, Robert Kennedy's assassination and his, and his funeral tomorrow, but uh, you know the stuff we always talk about is so timely even today in terms of government secrecy and, and, and violence and, and, and things that just unfortunately stay in the news for 50 years and, and even more. Yeah, and, and I, I agree. And, and the, first of all, what do we know about who killed Bobby Kennedy? Well, uh, people may have heard in the news that two of Robert Kennedy's uh, many children, uh, in this case, Robert Kennedy Jr. and Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, have been publicly calling for a new investigation into their father's murder, um, which is very unusual because the Kennedy family, and I think people understand this, uh, like, like any uh, you know, grieving family or when they have that loss, are usually very private about these kinds of things. And, and if they support new investigations, as, as Ted Kennedy did back in, in uh, 1991, when he supported the unanimous uh, passage by Congress of the 19, uh, uh, I think it was, uh, then they called it the 1992 JFK Act, to release all the JFK assassination files. 
they're, they're very private, the Kennedy family. So it's very unusual that Robert Kennedy Jr. and Kathleen Kennedy Townsend have been publicly calling for a new investigation. But they're doing that because uh, there's six main reasons that are just so glaring that, that you know, haven't changed in 50 years. And they're still out there about so many problems with the usual you know, lone gunman, lone nut assassination. Be happy to dive into those, and then those kind of lead us to who really did kill their father. Right. And, uh, but, you know, let's start with Sirhan Sirhan. What do we know about him? Well, so Sirhan Sirhan was an aspiring jockey, uh, a horse walker uh, for Southern California racetracks, including one um, uh, place that was connected to uh, Desi Arnaz, the you know, uh, ex-husband of uh, uh, Lucille Ball. Yeah. You know, yeah, Lucille Ball. And so he wanted, he's a small individual, about 5'2", uh, wanted to be a jockey, uh, suffered a fall, never quite made that. Uh, he, he came from Jordan, he and his family, and, and they were, uh, some people now try to make them out as Islamic terrorists. They were anything but. He lived in Pasadena with his mother, literally a, a little old lady from Pasadena, and his brothers, and, and, and they, you know, they lived in a, a quaint house. Uh, he considered, they considered themselves, and he considered himself a Christian. Uh, actually had a very normal kind of uh, life until... Uh, he had a, a, an injury that he got a settlement for, so he, he was not going to be a jockey. He really didn't have a lot of talent in that direction. Instead, he really loved to gamble on the uh, on horses. And so he wound up, as you can do if you gamble through bookies, getting very, very deeply into debt. To the mob? Uh, well, yeah, that's, that's who's handling that gambling in Southern California. In fact, two of the racetracks that he, he worked at uh, were, were notorious uh, uh, mafia centers. And so uh, he was gambling. Uh, he, at different times, apparently early on, he was telling people and, and flashing money and, and able to leave home for stretches, uh, a lot of money. And then, of course, the, the tips dry up, and you wind up, as well as your brothers, at least one of your brothers, deeply, deeply in debt to the mafia. Okay, we'll pick up this story right after the break. We're talking with Lamar Waldron, political commentator, JFK historian, and author of The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination, Ultimate Sacrifice, and Legacy of Secrecy about the 50th anniversary of the assassination and funeral of Robert F. Kennedy. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman program. Lamar Waldron is on the line with us, uh, the uh, political commentator, JFK historian, author of The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination, Ultimate Sacrifice, and Legacy of Secrecy, which I collaborated on. We are collaborators, Lamar and I. I guess that sounds better than partners in crime, doesn't it, Lamar? Uh, Either one sounds fine to me. Tom. Okay, you were you were talking just before we hit the break about uh, how Sirhan Sirhan was desperately in debt to the mob. I wanted to play a clip of uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy and uh, Jimmy Hoffa, who was pretty mobbed up back in the day, the the, the elder Jimmy Hoffa. And uh, you can tell the story about this after we listen to this clip. Or maybe actually, why don't you set the clip up and then we'll play it. Well, uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, in the late 1950s, in 1957, when this clip is from, was the chief counsel of the Senate committee who was, uh, 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 that was investigating organized crime. Uh, his, his brother, Senator John F. Kennedy, was a, was, a, was a prime member of that committee. So Robert Kennedy was, was getting his start in politics by being the chief counsel of his brother's Senate committee looking into organized crime and the way they got into organized crime, which was flourishing in the 50s under the Eisenhower-Nixon administration, was by going after uh, the allies of organized crime, in this case, uh, the most corrupt union in America, and some might say the only corrupt large union in America at that time, which was the Teamsters Union, which was thoroughly in bed with the mafia. So, so here is, I think what you're going to play is actually Bobby Kennedy. This is in an open Senate hearing basically going after Jimmy Hoffa, who's sitting there having to testify. Yeah, and Jimmy Hoffa essentially threatening him. Here it is. Finally, situations will be cleared up. Mr. Hoffa, that would make a great deal of sense. I'd be very sympathetic if it wasn't for the fact that a majority of these people are in the Central States Conference. And the people under your jurisdiction, you've got people in Detroit, at least 15 who have police records. You've got Joey Glimco in Chicago. I say you're not tough enough to get rid of these people then. So, you know, whenever you're telling yeah. uh, Jimmy Hoffa, he's not tough enough. So, basically, this started a huge feud. They're going after Jimmy Hoffa, who is incredibly corrupt, unlike, I want to say, you know, the current head of the Teamsters, James Hoffa Jr., who's, who's very honest. His father was not. Yeah, I know his and, son. He's a good guy. Right, right. And so, but, but it was very different in the 50s yeah. with, uh, with Jimmy Hoffa Sr. And so, the Kennedys, uh, John F. Kennedy actually ran for president 
uh, as the guy who was going to go after the mafia. He, he announced his candidacy in, in that very hearing room, and, and that was a big pledge of his. And, and, and lo and behold, once John F. Kennedy was elected and he appointed his brother, Robert Kennedy, attorney general, they kept their campaign promise. They went after the mafia in a massive, gigantic way, put the mafia's uh, you know, backs against the wall. Mafia didn't have Cuba anymore. Uh, Hoffa uh, was, was thoroughly in bed with the mafia. And, and by the summer of 1962, Hoffa, as we later learned from an informant, was planning to kill Robert Kennedy. Um, you know, because he felt he had no choice. Uh, Hoffa's two main allies in the mafia, uh, Santo Traficante and especially Carlos Marcello, the godfather of Louisiana and Texas, talked Hoffa out of that. Uh, basically, the argument was, look, if you kill Bobby Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy will simply send the army in and wipe us out. Okay. So well, the statement, the, the, as I recall from, I believe it was our interview with his lawyer, was, uh, or maybe, maybe I read it, uh, was uh, was the effect of you know Hoffa brought all this money to Marcello and Traficante and said kill Bobby Kennedy he's he's making my life miserable now with the Sun Valley land deal and uh, one of them uh, said uh, you know if if uh, if uh, you know if a dog is har- harassing you, you you cut off its head not its tail uh, I, I'm sure you know the quote better than I do Lamar well, right in and, other words if, if you if you if you cut off the tail of a dog and if you kill Robert Kennedy the head of the dog President Kennedy will turn around and bite you that was the phrase yes yeah and, on the other hand if you cut off the excuse me, the head of the dog. If you kill JFK, then the tail quits wagging. And so at that moment, Hoffa, Traficante, and Marcello basically all agreed to, to kill Jack Kennedy, and that was right. the beginning of that process, which is a whole other book. Right, right, um, right, but right. Uh, Which is basically, and they took a year, and they killed, they killed uh, President Kennedy, and, 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 and Traficante and, and Marcello all basically confessed, Hoffa basically confessed, and, and, and there was a, a, another person involved, uh, the Chicago Mafia's man in Hollywood, Las Vegas, by the name of Johnny Roselli. He also confessed. So, Before he was chopped up in, in, into little pieces and found floating in a 55-gallon 50, uh, oil drum in the, in the bay. Right. Johnny Roselli became the first Senate witness in history in the mid-'70s to ever die as a result of his testimony. So, right. so, so President Kennedy's assassinated. Uh, Bobby Kennedy keeps up the pressure to send uh, Jimmy Hoffa to prison. And, and, and by the way, Jack Ruby had so many connections. He didn't, Jack Ruby didn't just work for Carlos Marcello and had, had known Senator Traficante. Uh, he, had, he had a dozen connections with Jimmy Hoffa. Jack Ruby knew Jimmy Hoffa. So, so Bobby keeps going after Hoffa, and eventually they do send Hoffa to prison. Uh, Bobby, by that time, is a United States senator from New York. But Hoffa goes to prison. And get this, a year before uh, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated, the FBI is told, that someone at the same prison, Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary, uh, somebody there had overheard Jimmy Hoffa saying that he had a contract, now this is a year before Kennedy was killed, out on Senator Robert F. Kennedy. And that, um, and that here, here's the quote from the FBI files, I have a contract out on Kennedy, and if he gets in the primary or ever gets elected, the contract will be fulfilled within six months. A year later, there was another uh, report to the FBI saying this time that Jimmy Hoffa, in the same prison, had told New York Mafia boss Carmine Galante, who was also in prison there, uh, and Galante was very close to Hoffa's friend Carlos Marcello, and, and they were overheard discussing a mob contract to kill Robert Kennedy. And then, and then just a month before Robert Kennedy was assassinated, uh, you might remember Cesar Chavez, the great uh, union leader sure. in, uh, yeah, the farm workers. Right, right. So a lot of the big ranchers that, that Cesar Chavez uh, you know, would strike and, and, and got better pay and benefits from were very angry at Cesar Chavez and Cesar Chavez's biggest national supporter, Robert Kennedy, who was now running for president. And so a month before Robert Kennedy was killed in Del Delno, California, a very, very, very wealthy rancher uh, uh, and farmer named Roy Donald Murray was overheard by the chief of police of Delano and another one of uh, the police officers there saying that he had pledged a couple of thousand dollars to pay off a contract to kill Senator Kennedy and that the mafia, and this is the chief of police is hearing this wealthy rancher boast about this, you know, drunkenly one night, was behind the, the contract with the mafia and, and they had connections in Las Vegas um, and, and, and basically they were going to kill, uh, the, the total contract was, was said to be around half a million dollars to assassinate Robert Kennedy and that California, uh, if he won the California primary, that was going to be the conclusive proof that Robert Kennedy was going to get the nomination. So there was this huge contract floating around out there, this mafia contract. Uh, it was Hoffa and his friends like Carlos Marcello. 
um, who, who that was just out there. Yeah, so and let's had, be clear, a half a million dollars in, in, in the early 1960s would be the equivalent of maybe uh, you know, five to fifteen million dollars in today's money. This was serious. This was serious money. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Close, close to five million dollars in today's money. So this is a huge amount of money. Now, the way mafia contracts go, you know, you don't take you know, that money and go out and shoot Robert Kennedy because you know uh, why should you take that risk? You will, you will say to someone else, well, here's here's you know a, a fourth of that money. It's a lot of money. Right, and then and then that person's going to take it, and then they're going to. So it's going to go down the pipe. So so by the time you get to Sirhan, the figure written in Sirhan's own diary several times was a hundred thousand dollars, and so Sirhan had never shot anybody. Now Sirhan, two of Sirhan's three brothers had criminal records ranging from attempted murder to uh, narcotics convictions. So one of the um, horse type people that. Uh, 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 Sirhan had worked for was a mafia guy who used an alias. They did, police didn't even figure out who this guy really was. He was a convicted narcotics trafficker, narcotics trafficker. So plenty of ways for people to learn about this Sirhan. You know, let him run up some early winnings, and then you know you, you yank his, his his good advice and tips, right. and then suddenly he's God knows how much in debt. But but so he was going to apparently get a hundred thousand dollars in his diary. He keeps re- repeating, you know, the figure of $100,000 and pay to the order of, pay to the order of, pay to the order of, on the same pages where he talks about killing Robert Kennedy. Mm. Now, people have said, Sir Hand has said, he was mind-controlled and all this kind of stuff. Not, you don't have to even have that kind of stuff. Self-hypnosis was a big thing in the late 60s if you wanted to lose weight, stop smoking or whatever. And so Sir Hand got into self-hypnosis. That's, that's what these notebooks are about. When you have to do something you can't do on your own, that was a common thing to do then. So it doesn't require any CAA mind control or anything like that. The night of the assassination, Sirhan had four Tom Collins drinks, which are pretty stout drinks. Sirhan's a very slight person. So he was essentially, and he was witnessed being this way, essentially drunk. So when he says he doesn't really clearly remember that night, I, I would actually tend to believe him. But he wasn't the only one involved. Of course, you've got these people you know, paying money. His brother's never even were in a police lineup because Sirhan wound up with, guess what, not one, but two mafia lawyers. Hmm. Two mafia lawyers. One who had worked extensively for L.A. mobster Mickey Cohen, a close ally of Carlos Marcello. The other one was working at the time on the defense team for a group of criminals that included Johnny Roselli. Hmm. So when, 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 when Sirhan's lawyers basically tell him to uh, you know, admit what he did, and he did in open court. Uh, Sir Hen said, well, I, I shot him. When they don't question any of the evidence, and there's so many serious questions about all of the evidence and witness statements, um, you know, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Uh, Sir Hen's brothers started complaining about these two mafia lawyers, and one of Sir Hen's brothers, a month after Robert Kennedy was assassinated, one of Sir Hen's brothers was, was the subject of an intimidation attack. At 4.30 a.m. on the Pasadena Freeway, when he had been lured there in the middle of, you know, no traffic, no one around, and, and two cars came up on either side, and, and one flashes a gun at him and starts shooting into Sir Hans' brother's car, basically, which is something that, that Marcello uh, had done just the previous year with a Teamster official that was out of line. And that's a way of saying, you know, shut your mouth. Don't, All right, straighten don't up, buddy. About this, these, these so so we're, we're, that you we're getting short on time here, Lamar. Um, uh, was there a second shooter? I, you know, I, uh, who well, else? There was? were 10 witnesses who saw either another gunman in the pantry where, um, where Robert Kennedy was assassinated or saw someone fleeing the pantry area who could have been another gunman. So that's 10 witnesses, not one, not two. And the LAPD was rough on any witness extremely rough, because we have tapes now, on any witness that when he gets the official loan nut account. So the 10 witnesses did that. I'll tell you something else. So Robert Kennedy was shot from the fatal shot, was from behind his right ear from a touching point-blank range, an inch and a half or less. Okay? 14 witnesses, including the, 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 the hotel mate, uh, the uh, maitre d' uh, who was leading the group, Carl Eucher, said that Sirhan was never closer than a foot and a half to Robert Kennedy, and he wasn't behind Robert Kennedy. He was in front of Robert Kennedy. And, in fact, Carl Eucher, the maitre d', you know, saw Sirhan, pushed him up against the steam table. And so 14 witnesses said, 
he was a foot and a half or more, in some cases three or four feet, away from Robert Kennedy. He never got close enough to fire that fatal shot. Now, he fired a lot of shots. Five other people were wounded. Uh, you know, they weren't wounded fatally. So, hmm. and, and, and get this, their Sirhan's pistol, the twenty-two caliber pistol, held at most eight bullets. Um, there were photographs of uh, ten bullet holes. Right. Uh, what, what happened? Ser- to serious the- problems here. Uh, Lamar Waldron is with us talking about the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. We'll be right back. Uh, welcome back, Lamar. You're still with us. Um, so, so we have all this. Con- this continue to fill me in on the details here. Yeah. So, so on this evidence, like I say, Sirhan's gun held at most eight bullets. If there, you know, too many bullet holes and bullet fragments. You know, if, if they're 10 and not 8, well, then Sirhan could not have been the only... Okay, well, hang, hang on just a second. Let me just throw two countervailings. First of all, you said that 10 people saw somebody who, who could have been the second shooter in the room or fleeing. If it was right. 9 of them seeing somebody fleeing and only one saying he was in the room... You no, know, there, there were several in the room that saw that. And, 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 and by the way, it was someone who allegedly held a pistol. Uh, two different, or I think it was actually three different witnesses saw someone... Who was holding a pistol or something that looked like a pistol hidden in a a rolled up newspaper? Okay. So, in other words, a, a very easy way, if you think about it, to hide a gun, especially if that gunman doesn't fire, as the witnesses said, until Sirhan started firing. What Sirhan is firing, you're either looking at him or you're diving for cover, right? Yeah. Well, that was if, my point: is that some of those people might be fleeing because there's gunshots going on. Oh yeah, yeah. So, but but again, if, if the second gunman doesn't take his first shot. Until after Sirhan has started shooting, there aren't going to so be a Sirhan whole lot was the diversion. Even this many witnesses is kind of remarkable. Right. So Sirhan was the diversion. He was the patsy. Uh, he was the Lee Harvey Oswald. Although Lee Harvey Oswald didn't even, you know, shoot anybody. He didn't even know that he was going to be the patsy. Right. Right. He 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 was he was the he was the smoke screen, the thing, the shiny object you're supposed to be looking at. Now, what happened to a lot of this evidence that of like ceiling panels, wall panels, and the door frame that had all these extra bullet holes that can't be accounted for by Sirhan's gun? Well, after the trial, before Sirhan's appeal in 1969. They were all destroyed. A lot of the photographs of the extra bullet holes and, and, and x-rays and everything of the door jams and all like this that had the bullet holes, those were destroyed, too. Even the blood drawn from Sirhan. You know, were there any drugs in addition to the, uh, the four Tom Collinses? Was he legally drawn? And even the blood drawn from Sirhan was destroyed. And by the way, the bullet... That was uh, that killed Robert Kennedy was never positively even linked to Sirhan's gun because it was in fragmented condition. There was the girl in the polka dot dress, this attractive woman with uh, it was off. She was often said to be very memorable, having a, a shapely figure. That was a term that was used a lot. Fourteen witnesses that night and sightings before the assassination had had said that Sirhan was with this girl in the polka dot dress, and there was even a police alert was sent out for that woman. She was never located. By the way, Sirhan did tell an author that that the mob lawyers got to work on his defense team uh, about having girlfriends and going to strip clubs and dropping lots of money and all these women all over him, whereas you know, none of Sirhan's friends in the official story, he didn't have a girlfriend. And so clearly Sirhan had been given money. The mob was treating him well in exactly. anticipation of what he was going to do. And by the way, there's an audio tape that some analysis say. There's a, there's a Washington Post article this week where you can read about this. Some people say that an, the only audio tape that covers the time of the shooting shows more than eight shots. Now, they're, they're, that is disputed by some other experts. So the so bottom line, there's so much evidence that, that there does need to be a new investigation, but it goes farther than that. Yeah. David Morales, a CIA officer. Hold that, hold that thought, Lamar. And when we come back, we're only going to have about four minutes. So let's tighten it up. We'll be right back. Lamar Waldron is with us, uh, filling us in on the, on the RFK assassination. We'll be back. Uh, author of The Hidden History, The JFK Assassination, Ultimate Sacrifice, and Legacy of Secrecy, which I participated with. Uh, so, Lamar, you were, you were start, we were, we, just, to, just to recap, uh, Sirhan's gun held eight bullets. Uh, there was evidence of uh, 10 or more bullets. Uh, this uh, girl in the polka dot dress was missing. The, all of the evidence, uh, the, the molding, the doors, the things where the bullets were embedded was destroyed uh, before, before even his appeal. Uh, you know, the, uh, now there's an audio recording that apparently has more than eight shots in it, etc. So what do, we, what do we know about who might have been the actual person who actually murdered Robert Kennedy? Well, let's look at who was behind it, because who was ever paying that person, I would guess he would be a professional assassin, unlike... Um, uh, Sirhan. Sirhan. And of course, that then goes to, to the mafia, as well as some, uh, at least one person in the CAA, uh, Johnny Roselli's 
defense team. One of his attorneys, of course, is one of the two mob lawyers Sirhan winds up with for free. And Johnny Roselli's best friend in the CIA was named David Morales. David Morales was a mid-level CIA officer. And Morales did confess, as Roselli and Traficanti and Marcello did, his role in JFK's assassination. Uh, David Morales admitted his role in Robert Kennedy's assassination. His attorney. So he just flat out, he said, I was in Los Angeles. This is a quote. I was in Los Angeles when we got Bobby. So this guy, the CIA officer, David Morales, he flat out confessed. A mob, mobbed up CIA officer. He wasn't doing this on behalf of the CIA. He right, was doing right. this on behalf of the mob. Yeah, he's doing this for his good friend, Johnny Roselli. Right. Um, and then, and then uh, Carlos Marcello's brother was recorded uh, talking to a... Um, um, uh, a couple of mobsters, one from, Los a- uh, one from Los Angeles with Carlos Marcello. And so Marcello's brother says, uh, we took care of them, didn't we? You know, using the plural, not meaning, not meaning we didn't right. kill JFK. You know, they got both of them, and they actually laughed about Robert Kennedy's assassination and said some more incriminating things. This on FBI audio tape. So basically you've got, you know, one mobster, Roselli, his... his Okay, so, so Lamar, we're completely out of time. So the bottom line, we don't know who that professional assassin might have been, right? But we know who was paying for them. We know that Surahan did it for money. And if we ever get all of the JFK assassinated... Great, we're, we're out of time, Lamar. I'm sorry. They, uh, they thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow. Jefferson Smith is going to be filling in for me. I'm off to New York to the Talkers Convention, and I'll be back on Monday, but uh, you're going to enjoy Jefferson tomorrow. Thanks, Special thanks to Lamar Waldron. Uh, the, the books, The Hidden History of the JFK Assassination, Ultimate Sacrifice, and Legacy of Secrecy. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.